and welcome to the Sustainable Scotland podcast from The Scotsman, where we look at the people and organisations helping to make Scotland a more sustainable place to live and work. I'm your host Sean Milne, a journalist focused on climate change, and in episode 6, we're asking, why is it taking so long to make progress, and is there anything we can do about it? As usual, if you have any thoughts or comments on today's programme, please join the conversation by tweeting us at The Scotsman, or send us your ideas for future episodes. Meantime, as flash floods, wildfires and drought devastate lives across all corners of the world right now, our thoughts may never have been more focused on climate change than today, not least with so many hopes pinned on the forthcoming COP26 summit in Glasgow. But does what we, the ordinary people on the street, think count? Is anybody in power actually listening? And why does it feel sometimes as if nothing has been done? How then can we persuade governments and decision makers to do the very things that would seem obvious to us as being vital in reversing or at least mitigating this expanding cycle of climate collapse. Today we are joined by two people who are part of a group trying to achieve just that as part of Scotland's Climate Assembly, which recently submitted its much-anticipated conclusions to the Scottish Government. On its evidence group was Ian Stewart, a Professor of Geoscience Communication at University of Plymouth and Director of its Sustainable Earth Institute, a Fellow of the Royal Society of Edinburgh and President of the Royal Scottish Geographical Society, as well as making documentaries with the BBC and serving as UNESCO's Chair of Geoscience and Society. Also with us is Jocelyn Richard, an expert in marine invertebrate taxonomy, who is a member of the Assembly with around 100 others to help offer a cross-section of opinion spanning all of Scotland and tasked with plotting a route map that Scotland should follow to help lead us out of the climate catastrophe. Welcome both. Hi, thanks for having us. Hi, thank you. Ian, perhaps starting with you, for those people not familiar with Scotland's Climate Assembly, can you give us just a very quick overview of what it is, how it came about and what it was actually set up to do? Well, this was something that was mandated from the Scottish Climate Act that came through by the Scottish Government saying that it needed to be set up, which was a chance to kind of air the voice of, or to hear the voice really, of, of ordinary people in Scotland about uh, the kind of various climate options. And um, and so there's been a number of these uh, assemblies. There was a, there was one in Ireland, uh, various tasks, but there was one about climate, and then there was a UK assembly. Um, the, the difference in the Scottish one was COVID to a large extent. We suddenly found ourselves in, the, in lockdown. So the Scottish Climate Assembly was the first time that the uh, Citizen Assembly mode had been done completely online. In terms of the assembly, though, the actual structure mimics many of the previous ones, which is to get a broad spectrum of people, demographically representative, and, and of in terms of the income, age, disability, uh, and an important one uh, is their views on climate change. So within that hundred odd people, there were people who thought this was a complete ruse, it was a tax, and small, a small kind of minority of people at one end, and equally the other end, a minority of people who would class themselves as quite, uh, you know, informed about this and really um, maybe even campaigning. However, the vast majority of people were ordinary punters who probably hadn't thought much about it or thought, if they had thought about it, thought it wasn't really for them. And that was the point, really. It was just what happens when you take these issues, which are normally discussed in, you know, the policy sectors. What happens when you take it out into the public realm and, and, and let it loose, you know, and so that was, it was a really big experiment, and uh, especially with the online, which had to, you know, restructure to make it work for that. 
But really, it was just a chance to get that public voice about issues about where we don't really hear the public voice, as you mentioned in your introduction. You mentioned there it's happened during the pandemic, forcing it all to be online. Has that in some way influenced people's opinions, do you think, in terms of we're faced with this massive problem, this huge challenge? That's a really good point. I'd be interested in Jocelyn's view on this too. I mean, I think it did. I think there was a lot of introspection and reflection going on in people's heads because, um, and so there was two aspects, I would say. There was that. So people were already starting to rethink uh, their importance, their priorities, etc. I think the other aspect was the financial one, which they suddenly saw huge amounts of the economy getting geared to tackling. And so there was this kind of scratch in the head and said, well, hold on a minute. If it can be done for COVID, then actually it probably can get done for climate change. So I'd say on those two aspects, the COVIDization of the, of the whole process was important. And Jocelyn, why did you get involved? Why, what motivated you to take part? Well, um, like everyone else who was involved in the assembly, first of all, a letter came through the door out of the blue. Um, and, you know, there's so many things going on. I looked at it and went, is this for real? <laughs> but I read through it and thought, you know, I had a chat with my husband and, and we both, because it came to the household, thought, well, we should really do this um, out of, a, I guess, a sense of duty in that this opportunity has presented itself. We should take advantage of it. Never thinking, you know, that I would be selected because it's 20,000 households 100 people. I mean, you work out the statistics, you know, the chances of being chosen are, are quite slim. So we filled it off, it went away. And then, you know, a few weeks later, I got an email, and I was really quite stunned, but thought, you know, it, it's a sign. It's, it's a good thing. I've always been aware of climate change. But as Ian was saying, it's one of those things that, you know, I didn't think it didn't apply to me, but it was kind of out there among all the other things that are out there. And I think we were all so swamped with Brexit and then COVID that it, sometimes these things just get pushed a bit to the back. So um, so I said, yes, I mean, I'm really interested to find out more about climate change. Um, the fact that it was online was quite different and it was different in that, although you were connecting with people, and I would like to say that from the very first session, the atmosphere in the assembly was so positive. Everyone was so helpful. You know that all the support you could ever need was available. But I think the interaction, just because it was online, especially for me, I, I don't do social media. I don't do things like that. It was a bit, not a barrier, but you did didn't feel the connection that I think you might have shown or you might have felt had you been at a table at your group. But, you know, I don't think it affected the outcome. I think people engaged very well. You got used to it. Um, it, it was just such a, a, a positive environment to be looking at this problem in. And do you think you have learned something from it? Oh, oh, Definitely. And it was quite an eye-opener. I considered myself, you know, quite well-informed about things, and I knew nothing about climate change. And I took part in a survey, and at the start, you know, where you're being asked, how confident are you? And I'd had myself up at about a 7 out of 10, and it kept going down <laughs> because there was so much to learn. It was a real eye-opener, and it has definitely affected, you know, the way I view climate change 
you know, following the uh, the assembly. Can I can I put on another comment on the back of Jocelyn's point though? Because I think that we all we all learn loads. I mean, I learned loads as well. But the other thing about it that struck me is because we had some experts, we probably got onto this comment and talk about specifics, but it dawned on me that even in the evidence group, actually the evidence group, even in the evidence group, we come at it from quite a narrow angle. You know, we've got a speciality to talk about that. But the poor assembly members had to deal with the whole thing. And it's so rare to get the whole picture, to be across everything, because everything's interconnected. And I, it dawned on me that actually that is one of the real advantages of assembly for the assembly members, is it actually puts them in a different position from the so-called experts, because the experts have got this narrow view of, I don't know, the kind of aviation or diet or whatever it is, and they're not really thinking sideways about some of the other issues. But it was far more formidable, I think, for the assemblyman, this whole landscape of climate change into account and making the deliberations. And that's, to my mind, one of the real learning um, thoughts for me taken away from it, that it's a very powerful process. So the interim report itself was published in March. And it was followed by the full 201-page report in June. Yep. Among that were 81 policy recommendations yep. and 16 outright goals, urging, among other things, sort of decisive leadership, a call to action, if you will. Mm. Now, those recommendations and goals covered everything from now those recommendations and goals covered everything from the usual topics of land use change, decarbonizing heating and transport systems, banning single-use plastics, to some what may be considered as fairly bold suggestions, such as introducing a national nature service for people who are not in education, training or work, or eliminating frequent fire programmes and turning those on their heads by actually penalising those who use air travel more, or other changes such as universal basic income and four-day working weeks. We could go through them all if we had the time, sadly we don't. So out of this huge body of work, which of the recommendations stand out for each of you? Maybe starting with Jocelyn first. Well, um, it was really such an, an encompassing report, but I think it was difficult to, you know, reduce the number of goals and recommendations because they were all so important. And I think that was reflected in the voting by the members. For me, the thing that really struck me throughout the evidence, you know, the the goal of the assembly was to look not only at, you know, reducing our, our carbon emissions, but also, you know, broadly about changing the, the landscape of, of Scotland and how we live and work and, you know, go about our business. But I was still struck by the urgency of how we need to reduce our, our greenhouse emissions. And so for me, I tended to be drawn towards the very unfavorable goals of taxation. And if you, you know, look at the voting record, the, the support for most of the goals is very, very high, and it's still very high for taxation, but it's just a bit lower when it comes to things like taxing, things that are really important to a lot of people, like flying, there's high carbon taxes on food. I, I thought these were important some, because they were something that could be done immediately. And we do need to reduce our greenhouse gases while we set in place the longer term and the intermediate term reductions. So I tended to support that 
on that side of things. The other thing that I was really struck by was food labeling, carbon food labeling, similar to that which we have at the supermarkets that we do for nutrition in food at the moment. Um, because everyone eats, everyone can make these choices. And I think that anything that empowers people to make choices that can help reduce our emissions is good and because we need to bring people along with us as we go on this journey. And so that was another thing that really st stuck with me. And the last one was our National Reuse Charter. I thought that was an excellent idea. I'm an avid recycler and I had no real appreciation before the um, assembly that recycling is very, very low on the scale of where we want to go in, you know, treating our waste. Um, and that ties in with all kinds of things. You know, we want to change our um, recycling depots to reuse depots. We want to move from a linear to a circular economy. And this can provide all kinds of benefits to people and to the economy and to the environment. So those are kind of three areas that, that I felt were very important. And does that chime with your experience as well? Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I think, I think with these reports, when you get, as you say, huge, the devil's always in the detail of these things. And it's the temptation, I think, when you see a report of this, as you say, when you see the 80 odd recommendations, 16 goals, et cetera, is to, to start cherry picking this to start looking at the ones, you know, going through them and picking on the ones you think are interested and you like, uh, picking on the ones you don't like and get, you know, quite vexed about, and then starting to mull over the ones that aren't there and why is it not there? And I think that kind of misses a critical point of the assembly and of the report, which is Jocelyn's alluded to, which is the, the overarching side of things. So I, I look at this as almost like a pyramid. And the was that kind of priority statement that collectively the assembly members worked on, because that sets out a radical um, template for action, which says that there's a real appetite amongst a now informed mini Scotland public in the case of the assembly for really quite dramatic progressive action. So, you know, just a, you know, reading some, you know, that the, this is an emergency, it's a real and urgent issue, that it requires immediate action at all levels. You know, there's always a, you know, talking about should it be upstairs with the corporations, government, should it be downstairs with individuals and communities. But it talks about urgent cultural change, governments, businesses, communities, individuals, a real sense of everyone in this together. And then that notion of opportunity for pioneers, you know, there are opportunities around this immediate action. So, so the first thing is a huge positive impetus that things need to change and need to change fast. So that's number one. And then I think if you look underneath that, what you then see is you see that getting played out across a number of different sectors. And again, what I would say to people looking at the report is that, you know, if you look too carefully at the detail of the individual recommendations, it looks as if it's so specific, it looks as if things are missed out. But this really needs to be the start of a conversation. You know, this is a foot in the door, pushing open the door, where lots and lots of, you know, we need to tackle this across the whole portfolio of action. So I think it gives opportunities to those people across all the different areas I mentioned. And indeed, I think some of the areas that aren't mentioned to say, look, <clears throat> what the report shows is people in Scotland actually think we should be much 
more radical, pushing much faster than the, the politicians did. So then I think finally you get down to the detail parts. And, you know, we've all got our kind of inches. Well, I like the reuse one, the national reuse one, it just makes perfect sense. And really interesting was because of the generational changes, you know, there was talk, talk about, you know, how we might just, instead of, you know, some high, high carbon products that um, we might not use very much, the temptation is to, you know, buy things that's quite cheap and therefore it can lose. It gets you know, broken quickly or something like that. And um, and then we were talking about this in one of the breakout groups that I uh, jumped into. And one of the older members said, blotted out, radio rentals. And we said, what do you mean? And she said, well, I remember, we used to rent our television. And the young one and the younger one in the group went, what? You rented a television? She said, yeah, we just... So, so actually what it reminds you of, and this came up repeatedly, that actually wasn't that long ago, you know, a generation ago, that actually many of the things that we're talking about were at least not maybe standard, but they were much more commonplace. So there was a sense of reconnecting with common sense things that we did that we kind of deviated away from. Um, I think the other thing was about, uh, the, the other thing that's high profile, I guess, is the, the Scottish Oyster Club. But that's really just talking about the interconnectivity of transport these days. And the most people have smartphones. We kind of were touching that. You know, a lot of these things are probably going to come. So what the report does is just to try and accelerate that. And I would just finish with the one thing, which I think what this report does is, or it should do, is give courage to the politicians that are looking over the shoulder at their electorate you know, constituency and thinking, if I vote for this, will this go against jobs and then adjusting the same taxations where these form the issue? And I think that should give them courage that actually there's a groundswell of opinion that want us to move faster once people start to know about this. Um, so I think, as I say, we should get too bogged down on the individual recommendations. They're, they're there as talking points to start conversation. I would take the the, the big, um, you know, the, the sweep, really, of the report as probably its most important aspect and contribution. Okay, well, there's a phrase within the report which said, no one should evade responsibility. Mm. So who shoulders that burden the most? Is it, is it us? Is it governments? Is it business? Who is it needs to buck up their ideas most and think about other people first? Well, I think that's the point I was trying to make. I think it's everyone. And I think the assembly members were clear it's everyone. Normally what happens is it ends up in a discussion where the, the, the majority of the, the impetus for change gets pushed on to one sector and they've pushed back against it and we get into that. I think there is this, and again, it'd be interesting, Josh, this collective call to arms that says everyone needs to step up. We are all individuals. We are all part of communities. We are all integrated into business and all of this. We need to be pushing on all fronts. And I know that sounds like a cop-out, but I think we end up getting stuck in debates about, oh, that's government to do. Now, there was, of course, recommendations we realised only government could do this, or only business could do this, or only communities could do that. So there are bits where the, the responsibility is clear. But I think the message was this collective call to action. Um, and so I don't know if Jocelyn's got anything to, to, to add to that. Oh, I, I agree with you completely, Ian. I, I think the message here is that you cannot pass the buck. You know, it, it's with all of us. I've heard people say before to me, well, what can I do? I'm just one person. But there are, you know, there are billions of people on the planet and even the smallest actions that we can do as individuals collectively 
it is a big thing. It is worth doing. And I agree with Ian, some things can only be driven by government. Government has the resources to put in place the funding that we need, the investment that we need. And this, this is considerable to encourage businesses to, you know, um, step up the research and development um, into, you know, carbon capture techniques, whatever various things that will help us on this path. But and I, I think just looking through the report, it comes across that individual members have felt that as a result of being in the assembly, they have changed a lot of things that they do. They look at things differently. I know that, you know, when I look at something now, I used to think, what does that cost? And now I think, what does that cost in terms of carbon? You know, what is the carbon cost to what I'm going to do? Because hearing from all these experts made me realize that every choice I make has a carbon cost to it. Um, and I'm, I'm not saying that I've done anything majorly drastic, but I've done a, a lot of things. And one thing we just got was a smart meter. And my goodness, I like the competition of trying to keep that smart meter within my budget. It's really, you know, the lights are off. <laughs> Everything's out on the line. These little things that people can do are so important because they make us feel involved. They make us feel that we are being involved in the change that that's required. We're not sitting back and waiting for government or business to do things for us, but we can only do so much. But we can also drive this through what we demand of our government and our businesses. And I think that's a really important thing that we must keep in mind as individuals. Jocelyn, I find that story of yours quite fascinating. From the start, you felt you were quite well informed. By the end, you realised you had so much more to learn and you've changed your habits, you've changed what you do. Everything from reusing, we're telling people to reduce their meat and dairy intake. We're asking for high-speed broadband, better energy strategies, carbon labeling, 20-minute neighborhoods, the whole shooting match. But when it's 100 of you all focused in the bubble on climate, it's perhaps not surprising that your attitudes and your behaviors change. How do we get everybody else to do that? Well, I have thought about this because we were such a diverse group. You know, we really were well representative of, I think it's been referred to as a mini Scotland. And I think that if we are given this information and we all have, you know, seen what the situation is like and how we need to change, I think if more people in Scotland were informed, as we have been informed, that they would also realize that change needs to happen. I think education and I think, you know, if people are educated without being overwhelmed, there's a, a very fine line, you know, of being overwhelmed and thinking, you know, I, and I, to be honest, there were days at the end of the, depending what the, con, you know, who the, the people were speaking to us, I would just finish and say, we're doomed, <laughs> we're doomed, you know, but we aren't doomed. And then the next week you'd get back and, you know, it would you'd start again and, more progress would be made. And, you know, there was quite a range of, of topics that we covered. So some of them were more amenable to optimistic thinking than others. But at the end of it, I think the result was we saw the situation for what it really is. And I think that's what people need. They need to be informed and encouraged and, and shown a way that they can make a difference and, and that there is a, a, 
a roadmap of sorts that has been provided by the Assembly Report of how Scotland can change. Ian? I'll just add to that a little bit because there was lo- I had loads of jaw-dropping moments, but I suddenly thought, oh, I had no idea about that. And, and I found myself in contact, particularly my daughters, actually, because there's a lot of stuff around consumption and things like that. My, I've got daughters in the early 20s, and I was going, did you know? You know, and I was getting into that kind of finger-wagging kind of thing and send them the videos. And that's what I was going to mention. Is we now, as a result of this process, you know, all of the, the specialist presentations were captured as videos. And so on the web page of the, the assembly, there's this, this whole portfolio of fantastic, really short, you know, eight to 10 minutes usually, but sometimes less, um, videos about some of these key points. And I don't think we quite appreciated at the start what that resource was going to be like, because we've now got this amazing resource that Jocelyn mentioned education, and that comes up a lot in the assembly about, and I think it comes from assembly members and, and you know, people like myself going, oh my God, if I didn't, if I knew this, I would have thought differently. And if other people know this, then they'll think differently. So, <clears throat> so I think this idea of education and using the resource that we've built up for schools, et cetera. Just about a week after the assembly finished, I went into a school and I had to talk about sustainability and they'd been doing something around diet, changing diet and also consumption. And I actually just um, clicked onto the webpage and, and showed a few minutes of the wellbeing video um, uh, um, from Catherine Trebek and also the sustainability uh, video from Mike Barry. And, um, and they were fantastic. They were saying, this is great stuff. So I think we've left a legacy. Um, and slightly, we didn't think it through. I mean, it wasn't part of the necessarily planning. But I think one of the, the main values of the, of the, um, the assembly going forward will be this resource legacy that we've left for other people. Because most of the presentations, you know, some of them talking about Scotland, but some of them were generic, some of them were global. You know, so it does give a very rounded view, I think, of the, of the issues that are getting discussed. Young people, of course, were part of the assembly as well. And in the literature it's provided, someone called Maya is quoted in it, saying, I've never known a time when the climate emergency did not threaten my future. Now, that's quite upsetting when you consider it. And when you consider that 16% of Scotland's 5.3 million people are children aged under 15, that's a lot of nightmares, that's a lot of worries. That surely should, one, be enough to shame us into action. But certainly, how did their contributions impact on your thinking and the end result? For me, I think early on in the assembly, my take was we saw the first video from the Children's Assembly and, and we thought, oh, that's quite cute, that's quite sweet, what they're kind of saying and things like that. And, um, and then we heard from them every, you know, they were in a parallel process, we heard back every week. And then I did a session with them where I went in and I was just, you know, I was sitting there listening and watching and I thought, this is really good. This is really interesting. And there was a really moment later on, and I don't know if Jocelyn was part of this or not, where some of the assembly members visited, went into the, the Children's Parliament world, and came back and said, you know, I think we've been too smart and clever about this. Those guys have got it right. They're just clearer, more direct about what they want. And, and it completely transformed. This was the first climate assembly that had been formed by, informed by that young voice. And I think it had a really dramatic effect, particularly impelling people's thinking because there was a, a tangible representation of that future generation in the room. 
And and you heard it a lot in the last couple of weeks when assembly members were starting to write up the things about, well, the children would say this. Um, so, yeah, very, very powerful, I, I think. Jocelyn, what's your what take? Oh, I agree. I mean, they were so inspiring and they really, you know, gave us such hope. You know, you felt if, if this was the attitude of the younger generation, there really was hope because they were so engaged and they really looked at it with, okay, you know, this is a problem, but we can tackle it. And their recommendations in the report, and I meant to rent, write one down and I forgot to when I was looking through it, it just summed it up. It was something like, you know, buy less, eat less, get more exercise. Uh, it, you know, it just summed everything up in about six statements. And basically, that's what we need to do. We really need to just kind of pare back our life and stop and think what, you know, we're all in such a rush. We all have so many things about us. What do we really need? What do I need to live a happy and sustainable life? And it's a lot of it isn't what we're what we're doing and what we're spending our time and money on. Um, and I thought the children really, you know, saw what we needed to do. Spend more time with each other. You know, out, out, there was one more more space for adults and children to play. I liked that. You know, like we would we could all benefit with getting out and just being together as a community and enjoying ourselves. There was a great line I remember from one of the kids. Um, I don't think that's ever made it to the final report, but they said, you know, we we found out that most, I can't remember what percentage of Scotland is owned by about 100 people. You know, why don't we just get those 100 people in the room and just get them to sort it out, you know? <laughs> and yeah, why is it that we don't do that? You know, some of them are just so simple, but the clarity is just so, so beautiful. But, uh, but yeah. If we fail to act now, we'll fail our current and future generations in Scotland and across the world. Mm. That's another key phrase that stuck out. Now, COP26 takes place in November. We all know about that. The government has six months to respond to this report. Chances are they're going to do it a lot sooner and probably to coincide with build-up to, to the summit. The question is, do we have time to wait for a press conference and all the backslapping that goes on? Don't these recommendations be implemented now? And can we find that courage you mentioned, Tat? You have both talked about the urgency required. So, Jocelyn, when do we do this? Well, that's, that's a very good question because, you know, in the time that we've just taken to, you know, meet as an assembly, produce the report, wait to hear back from the government, that will be a year. And a lot of these recommendations, you know, have time time frames that, you know, we're looking at 2030 um, as a major milestone in reducing our, our greenhouse gases. The one thing that struck me throughout the assembly as we're, we're making the report is the complexity of what we're asking to be done and what needs to be done. And it really needs a, a consensus across all the parties. We don't have time to be, you know, thinking about how will this look with the voters? How will how will we get this passed? You know, with the other parties, we need we need to start now. These major changes, retrofitting houses, you know, our transport changes, they all need the wheel to be set in motion. And it's a bit of a chicken and the egg. We need to do it, but we need the people who are trained to do it. So we need 
the education programs and the work programs to train them. So at some point, we just have to say, we start now. And, and it has to be immediate, really. Yeah, I just echo exactly what Lynn said. I mean, I think that, um, you know, the, the climate system, as we understand, it's got all these exponentials on this where things slowly get up and then they start accelerating and they you know, they, they take off. But I think that what we're starting to learn is that there's aspects of the social system as well, the social political system that operate in the same way. So hopefully, you know, this it may seem like a slow gradual start, but we've got to pick up consensus here. It's about a fair and effective uh, transformation. Um, in other words, the effective is we have to do things that will actually make a difference to reducing carbon emissions and et cetera, and, and mitigating and, and adapting. But the, the fairness is about, you know, we can't go faster than what the majority of people want. So it's really critical that we, we go through this process and hopefully pick up pace and we go into an exponential and that, that's what does it. But I think that, um, you know, as I said, you can look at any of the recommendations and you can pick on them and say, that could get done now. That could get done pretty easily now. But you could also look at the same recommendations and find reasons not to do them. And one of those might be, well, that on its own won't do anything. And that's kind of the point. It's the collective. It's the collective, all of those different aspects getting moved forward um, at pace and at quickening pace. And for that, we really need the, the democratic will of Scottish people that this is the direction of travel we need to go in. So I'm not, uh, uh, and I don't think that Jocelyn is either. I think what we're seeing is this is the reality we face. This is where we go. You know, people that are interested in climate change and sustainability will be wanting it to move faster and frustrated that it's not moving faster. But they are still broadly the minority in Scotland. Most people haven't really thought about that. So we have to reach that majority. And things like the Assembly report, I think, will be a mechanism to do it. And I and I do think the government will respond positively. I think the, the glare of COP coming up in Scotland, and I know it's a UK COP, but the glare of Scotland and Homeland well, I think, focus the minds. And then, as I said earlier, I think that, you know, this giving courage to individual politicians to, to push each other to be more radical, I think will really help us as well. So, Ian, you've been doing this a fair while now. You've got the medals. You've heard the conversations, the arguments. And you've got the expertise. Is it even possible for, for all this to happen? I mean, we can all wave our reusable water bottles in the air and demand this and demand that. If you are a government, if you are those politicians you're referring to, where's the magic wand for them to make it happen? Well, there's no magic wand. I think what it is, I mean, this is so we heard from Chris Stark, who's head of the used to be Scottish climate leaders, I'm sure you know, but there's no UK climate change commission. And you know, his point was it's all this has all been costed, all this stuff can happen. So it's the will to make it happen that's that's the, the missing kind of link. Um, I would say two points on can it happen. I, I think that even though the recommendations in this report are radical and more progressive than Scotland, who is already a progressive country, one of the most progressive, it's still not enough. It's still not enough to reach Paris, the Paris Agreement. So we have to do more. So in that sense, um, the, this is a, a call to arms that we need to be pushing beyond what was actually in that, that report. However, the other thing that I would say is that almost every climate scientist I speak to talks about this renewed sense of purpose right now. COVID has done it, but it's the Greta, it's Extinction Rebellion. It's, it's, seeing, it's seeing Biden come in. It's seeing change happening all around and a huge energy and a huge momentum for change. And that, that speaks to an exponential. That speaks to a gathering pace 
uh, quicker than peers. So, so I think that um, I think we need to be realistic. You know, COP twenty deliver everything we expect, but the point shouldn't be we shouldn't be relying on COP. This is something that Scotland needs to start making its own trajectory with its own direction of travel with, and and we need to show leadership and um, and you know other. Other countries will will come, but first and foremost, we need to do our bit. And I think we will. We're talking about political consensus here. We know the SNP and the Greens are in discussions. We know the Conservatives, the Labour, soon to be Lib Dems have all got their own changes of leaderships as well. Jocelyn, as a voter, do these kind of issues influence which way you might go? Oh, definitely, definitely. And I think, um, you know, certainly among my close family and and it's certainly influenced many of them as well. Um, And I think, um, you know, you have to, I think this is a priority when you're voting because it really is essential to all of the other, you know, um, plans coming into place. So your your party has many policies, education, health, but they're all interlinked now with climate change because it's such a fundamental part of where, um, you know, the direction we're going in and how resources will need to be managed in the future and how our, you know, our resilient our country can be to withstanding climate change events. So it certainly has it has affected how I vote, and I think it will continue to affect how I vote politically. And Dean, presumably from your point of view, you think it goes beyond parties. It's all about the parliament and that collective. Yeah. And another thing, and one of the really heartening things that came out of the climate assembly was the notion of moving away from GDP as an indicator of a country's success to looking at the health and well-being of its people and its environment. And there's very strong statements to that. And I think actually at one point it was going to say that we should absolutely move away from GDP. And in the end, the final statement, I think, had said alongside GDP. But they said, I think that the, um, the, the main thrust was we need to find a... It's time now, and Scotland's in the lead of the Scotland, to find a new way of judging what we see as success, business success, economic success, industrial success, again, across the board, really. And the well-being framework that Scotland's in need of is, is one of those things. And I think that that permeates down, filters down into many of the other issues that voters are interested in in terms of the economy and transport. You know, the kind of things that they would vote for in terms of parties. So I think all a lot of the parties will have to retune their arguments to this broader well-being framework that the, um, the Climate Assembly speaks to as well. And I think that is a change. I don't think that's... That's been in front of the electorate previously. So I think that would change the the landscape. In terms of moving this collective mindset from politicians, businesses, individuals, is it going to take more sort of floods in London, things that affect us on a personal level? Or is there going to be some other motivating factor? You mentioned Jocelyn taxation, for instance, as another route map. How do we make this shift as a nation? What's going to take us, what's it going to take for us to say climate has to be the number one issue? Jocelyn? I think being affected personally, you know, I think these 
global events that we're seeing, you know, um, my sister on Vancouver Island was affected by the massive heat wave that Canada experienced. That was just really unbelievable. And I think as, as these events become more common, more people will be forced to accept that climate change is going to impact on their life. I think also taxation, if they can't do things um, that are non-essential, but very much a part of their life because it's too expensive, that will also influence them. I also think that education, you know, becoming aware, having, you know, climate information available to people so that they can understand what's happening better, what changes are needed, and especially in schools. Children are a great, you know, um, they're very good. If you provide them with this information, they take it home. It gets into the home. It, it becomes part of the family um, ways of thinking. And I think these are all things that contribute, can contribute to the collective shift that we need in mindset. For me, one of the things around the change will be, you know, these negative external, uh, you know, the, the, the fear of you know the wildfire, the flood, so that whereas there are a critical reality of what climate change is, but I think on their own they won't be impetus for change because I think the change, the, the trouble with those kind of things is it can lock you in in fatalism and just go well, you know, or, you know they. they, they Justly mentioned there were several moments in the assembly. You think, oh my God, we're doomed. So I think that that's the danger. So it's really critical that we also have these really positive opportunities for change that that talk about a better a better Scotland that could be there, things that are achievable and tangible, etc. And I think the assembly report's got lots of those. And I think, or I hope, what will happen is that, as I say, the Scottish government, the Scottish Parliament, really. We'll just take a sniff and realize, sniff there and realize there is a change amongst the at the grassroots and the community level for this kind of stuff. And because because a really rapid big scale changes probably need to be driven at the top level with the you know the the support of the, of the of people. But so I think we are looking at big business and government for, for a lot of the big ones. Um, and I, I suspect that, you know, as I say, the assembly will have be one little cog in that, that wheel. It won't be the thing that does it all. But I think it's just part of a whole suite of different um, external pressures that are coming in that are saying this is the direction we need to move in. And as I said before, I, I hope that it's about uh, a quickening place, that things feel slow at the moment. They are too slow. We all accept that. Well, those of the looking at this feel it's too slow. But there's no need, there's no reason to think that as people come on board with this stuff, that it will be such self-sustaining drive that will accelerate. So that's me. Now, this is also your profession as well, Ian. But on a personal level, how has it felt to have been part of this assembly? It was absolutely fantastic. Justin said at the start that they're feeling of duty more, and I had that as well. I think actually, I think many of the people in the evidence group had it. You know, it was a. a I mean, I think I was in every session. It took a lot of time out of our days to, to, to do it. But I wouldn't have missed it for the world. And for me personally, as an academic, watching this process by which facts and academic stuff was introduced uh, to set the thing going, but then watching this, this um, kind of almost machine of just people talking about this thing was just wonderful. 
you know, hearing things debated. And, and you know, by weekends three and four and five, people talking about the intricacies of passive house standards and all the rest of it. But, you know, a month or so before, they would never have dreamt of even kind of broaching. It's wonderful. And I think I had a real a lump in the throat when we first saw the, the recommendations coming in and then the numbers for the recommendations, because that was stuff that was the assembly members of their business. And it was a real sense that actually we, we were thinking about after we could probably have pushed the assembly members more, you know, really been a, because we were really overwhelmed them. And it certainly at times I think we, we probably did. But overall, everyone kind of just geared up for it. And um, so it was the most tremendous experience. Do you feel the same, Jocelyn? Do you think it's made a difference? Oh, I do. I, I think so. It's been, it was amazing. It was, I don't know what my expectations were beforehand because, you know, it was just such a completely new thing to experience. But as I said at the start, the atmosphere was always just, you know, so friendly, so supportive. You really couldn't say anything wrong. There was nothing wrong. It was your opinion, you know, and everyone's opinion was respected. And the groups were, you know, sometimes the groups were really fun. Sometimes they were quite serious. You know, it really varied, but it was just always something new and interesting every week. I learned so much about climate change um, and, and the difference that I can make as an individual. And I thought, I think that was very valuable, you know, certainly a very valuable experience. If you had one message, Jocelyn, for anyone listening to us today, what would it be? Well, something that I wrote at the start when I was filling in, I don't know, a form about, you know, being on the assembly that nothing is ever too little or too late. Every effort that you make is worth doing at any stage. Every contribution that you can make to reducing your the climate, um, and, well, our carbon output is just worth doing. And to, you know, just have faith in, in the future. I think that we have, as humans, we have the ability to to, to get through this. You know, I wouldn't be... Over, I don't feel overwhelmed anymore like I did at some points during the proceedings. I feel quite optimistic and I'm looking forward to seeing what COP26 produces. Ian? Well, I just said it beautifully. I, um, I agree with all of that. I think the, the thing for me is to start having conversations about this. What this has taught me is that people are actually, once you get you know, climate change, sustainability, all these things seem like a very dry topic. But I would uh, take the impetus from the report to, to start having those conversations because by normalising and by elevating climate change to something that you can have a talk about in the cafes, in the pubs, on the bus or whatever it is, it'll, it'll really start to drive that social change that we need. So, yeah, start talking about it. Even if you disagree with it, you know, I think that's the point. Just start talking about it. It's a conversation we're going to keep going on with, but sadly it's all we have time for today. Thanks to our guests, Jocelyn Richard and Professor Ian Stewart from Scotland's Climate Assembly, today's production team, Mark Wilson and Kelly Crichton, and to you all for listening. Please feel free to keep in touch with us on Twitter at The Scotsman, share this episode with your friends and peers, and subscribe to Sustainable Scotland, wherever you get your podcasts.